0: From VT Digger, I'm Mike Doherty. This is The Deeper Dig. This week, how a Middlebury College student became one of Vermont's leading COVID-19 experts. If you've been following the pandemic in Vermont this year, you've probably encountered the work of Benji Renton. Benji aggregates COVID news and research in a weekly newsletter and on his Twitter account, where about 14,000 people read his posts. He's also compiled unique data sets on things like the White House COVID outbreak last fall or the opening weeks of the U.S. vaccine rollout, things that no one else was comprehensively tracking at the time. Benji's analyses made their way into national news coverage, and he's contributed data work to Governor Phil Scott's regular press briefings as an intern for the state's Department of Financial Regulation. Benji has done most of this work from a dorm room in Middlebury. The pandemic started when he was a junior studying abroad in Beijing. He made it back to the U.S. in February of last year, and since then, he's been working more or less nonstop.
1: Hi, Mike. How you doing? Good. This is my, uh, my bare bones setup here. It's, it's, uh, there's, there's packed stuff kind of everywhere.
0: <laughs> I talked to him the Thursday before graduation, as he was packing up his room to leave Vermont for the foreseeable future. Are you graduating this weekend? I am. Yeah, in two days. <laughs> Congratulations.
1: Thank you. Yeah. How are you feeling? <laughs> I'm feeling good. I think it's definitely been a really interesting four years, especially the last year and a half. But um, (laughs) but I definitely feel I think that I create a lot of great memories here. And I think I hope that I've done a lot of academic and satisfactory, both academic and and other work that that I think I feel very fulfilled sort of coming out of it.
0: You posted a tweet a few weeks ago that jumped out to me because it was different from from what you're usually tweeting. And it was the cover of your thesis. And it was just this weird reminder that you are an undergrad in college. And, and that's been a thing that's been easy to forget over the course of the past year when yeah. <laughs> you've also kind of carved out this niche as this really you know visible and reliable source of COVID-19 information. And I want to know just how have you been balancing those two things?
1: Yeah. It's really fun. As an aside, when when everyone says, I saw your tweet, I always get really nervous. I was like, what did I do this (laughs) time? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, When everyone starts to send I'm like, "Uh uh-oh. It's been a really challenging year to balance everything like that. I'm still taking three classes and and I've been working on this thesis project for the past year or so. I, I started in the fall, worked a little bit in January and have been finishing it really in the spring. And it's just really interesting because I think I came into this pandemic not having any formal training or any formal coursework even in public health or really anything of the sciences. I think of why I only walk into science building a number of times a semester here on campus. You know, As an East Asian studies major, I think that's been a really interesting perspective. And I think it's shown me that this is a pandemic that affects all of us in different ways. And there are so many different ways to approach a problem. And I sort of felt like I came with it, you know, came to this pandemic with a background that I thought was worthwhile, you know, being in China and just really understanding what was happening in the early days of this. And I I always think back to the early days of this, you know for a lot of people, they had their sort of moment in March when the world was basically ending, you know, the NBA had suspended their season. Tom Hanks tested positive that all happened with like within a period of like three hours or whatever. And everyone sort of freaked out. Um, But I think, you know, for me, that was much earlier and being, being in China in January gave me this perspective that I've sort of carried with me over the last year and a half. So what was that
0: moment for you? What was your Tom Hanks MBA moment when you were overseas?
1: I think it was around the end of January, like probably the 27th or 28th. We had canceled our program on the 28th. I just saw that it was getting harder and harder to do the normal things that we would do abroad, whether it was traveling or even like leaving the campus because they set up like a gate around our sort of college campus. And the world started closing in on us in a way. Buses were canceling. I was traveling at that time. And so there was like trains that were being canceled. And we sort of took the last one out of the station. And it was all just incredibly quickly. You know, people started buying masks. There wasn't a mask order yet or really, but people just started buying them. And I went to the supermarket and I bought the last one off the shelf. And I was basically like, I'm never going to need this. But like everyone else is buying them. So I should probably, you know, buy one myself. Um, I turned out having to use all of them. (laughs) For me, that all happened in January. And I think just living through those last couple of days of, especially like the group that I was with, a student sort of freaking out that they were going to have to go home, spending the, the days, getting everything I need to get done in Beijing, trying to help people get out. And then at, at night, either helping out with departures or like writing what was happening on the ground or writing, you know, daily updates or whatever. There were times in the end of January where I slept three to four hours a night (laughs) for, for a couple days, for sure. So what do you
0: feel about going through those early days and going through that stuff earlier than a lot of the rest of the world? What unique perspective do you feel like that gave you on what came next?
1: Yeah, I think, you know, if people said, did you predict a pandemic of this sort. I didn't have the knowledge or the expertise to really do that. And I didn't really think that was going to happen. I think it was going to spread. And I think I grew up in Hong Kong. And when I had moved there in 05, there was a bird flu pandemic right before then. There was also SARS, which was like 03-ish. But I think even like moving there in 05, that was still on people's minds. So I think I sort of remembered that like these things happen every once in a while. February, I think, was a very strange month because I sort of came back to the U.S., and no one else, like, I did everything normally, (laughs) because we didn't know better. You know, I I went to events, I had done all that stuff. But I think for me, it's had this longevity to it, that I was able to learn from what happened over there. And I I, I sort of wish that people paid more attention in that way to what was happening, not just in China, but in Italy, in in Europe, and a lot of those places. Because I think we only started to realize that was a problem when it came to our shores and when we started to take action against it.
0: I wonder why you chose the the kind of methods that you did to start tracking things and start sharing information. You know, you were really active with a newsletter, with a blog, with your Twitter account, starting all these data dashboards. Why did you
1: see that as a specific kind of need? Yeah. My initial reporting as a, as a student journalist and as someone who's, who's done a fair amount of journalism for, for a little bit here, especially in college, I think I wanted to be able to tell these stories. And I think the early days in January, I had started pouring out um, daily reports of what I was reading in, in the Chinese media, what I was reading in the U.S. media, and what was physically happening to us. You know, we couldn't go to a train station. You know, they had to temperature check us when we went on the subway or anything like that. And then coming back in the U.S., and I'm from New York, and so I was right outside the city in, in March and April, and really all the way through that. Being in New York and having that sort of experience of what was happening during there, I just wanted a way to distill, I think for myself and then for, you know, obviously a larger audience, which which grew over the past couple months, to, to distill what exactly was happening. Because I think, Unfortunately, there's so much that goes on in any given day in general with the, with the pandemic. Just being able to distill information in a way that people want to read every week. I think a weekly media, I think a weekly newsletter is sort of the happy medium between like daily versus, you know, longer than that. And then a lot of the, the data and, and the numbers, I think I just saw as a way the numbers didn't lie, in my opinion, and the numbers were just a way to show people what the situation was. Cause you can read about a lot of things, but I, I felt that that was going to be my approach. And I, I didn't have any data journalism really experience or background before I probably made a couple of charts beforehand, but I never like had, you know, data experience. And so I basically tried to take those skills and, and really carry them through and now is more of a routine in, in the last couple, couple months
0: you talk about having this newsletter as sort of like a happy medium to kind of like get this digest every week. But for folks who follow you on Twitter, I mean, it's obvious that you are on all the time (laughs) and that you're consuming a ton of news and information and scientific research and and real data about COVID. I, I wonder, you know, how have you been able to kind of keep up that pace of consuming and digesting and kind of
1: aggregating information? To be honest, it's been quite nuts. (laughs) So the way the newsletter works, and I'm sure there's a more organized way I could do this, but I started it in last April. And every week I'm like, I I just kind of have to keep going with it. I have like a note in my computer in the notes app that I just keep adding links to all week. And eventually that gets to be like 20 pages or whatever. And there was a time in the height during the summer where each week would have about 500 links to it. So I've read... Five, whether it was news articles or tweets or study or whatever, I was reading 500 things a week. Now I've somewhat cut it down. But I think for me, I really try to get a balanced perspective. And I think in a world that is incredibly polarized, especially in science, on political lines, for me, I think it's really important to understand how other people are thinking. You know, I think I thought about this a lot in the, in the vaccination role when you're trying to get more people to be vaccinated the people who are not vaccinated right now are not the ones who care about our not or epidemiology or really anything. They don't know about that. You know, they, they, they don't read anything about that. And so how do you get people to care? I think you need to sort of look at the everyday issues that affect, you know, Americans or, or whoever you're talking to. I think there's just been a big messaging crisis and, and a crisis of trust that who do you trust? And for me, I tried to sort of fill that role by really including all those perspectives, as many perspectives um, as, as I could. We'll be right back.
0: Just a quick message from our underwriters. Community Health is Vermont's largest federally qualified health center. Affordable, accessible, quality primary health care at Community Health includes dental, pediatric, behavioral health, and pharmacy services. With practices in Rutland, Pollitt, Shoreham, Brandon, and Castleton, new patients are always welcome. And centers are open seven days a week at Express Care in Rutland and Castleton. Community Health accepts Medicaid and offers sliding-scale fees, making health care accessible to everyone. Community Health. Your health is our mission. I reached out to a couple people who've worked with Benji. They all say this kind of work seems to come naturally to him.
1: One of the things that I first noticed about Benji before I even knew him was that he, it seemed like he was everywhere. I, he's one of those students who I saw on campus more than most other students.
0: This is Jason Mattel. He's the faculty advisor for the Middlebury Campus newspaper, where Benji worked throughout his time in college.
1: And he was really just engaged in the community and there's a real sense of his presence. I remember I you know, posted on Twitter and other social media a few of his earliest blog posts around COVID and said, you know, this is a Middlebury student and he is doing some of the best compilation of material out
0: there. And I, I remember you know, lots of people saying, I cannot believe that this is an undergraduate student who's putting together this newsletter. He was very engaged on the topic of COVID. He was um, obviously very smart, and he was committed to Vermont as well. Mike Pichak is the commissioner of Vermont's Department of Financial Regulation. He brought Benji in this winter to start helping the state with its COVID modeling work. I saw his work on Twitter, on social media, and uh, you know I followed him quickly, and I would find myself referring to things that he would either be sort of forwarding from, from the media, or things that he was putting together, and analyses that he was putting together about higher education restart. I and mean, he's, he's fun to work with. He's good to work with. He's like the nicest person uh, in Vermont. <laughs> I, I would suggest. <laughs> <laughs> you can tell he um, clearly cares about um, the place where he lives in Vermont, and that you know Vermont um, that we have the best possible response that we can, and, and that we uh, try to make Vermont as, as safe as, as it possibly can. So he's had that as his as his core. Um, you know, guide all all the way along, which is great. You make it sound as though you took on this work in this way where you sort of fell into it. But it's also clear that, you know, the way you followed through on that and the way you've stuck with it, that COVID-19 really seems to have a, a kind of draw for you that it like really sort of encapsulates a, a real area of interest for you. And I wonder, have you thought about what, what that is? Like, what is it about COVID-19 that has, has provided this, you know, kind of fascination for you to kind of stick with this subject for so long? Well, I mean, I think there
1: are just so many angles to the story of how people cover COVID-19 or or really anything and I've tried to read both, you know, the, the medical, the scientific, but then also like, to be honest, the downright strange of like the, the toilet paper rush that never happened in China. People were never hoarding toilet paper to the extent that people were here or or even, you know, the economic crisis. And, and I'm not much of an econ person, so I, I don't think I focused as much on, on the economic crisis in my work personally. But I think for me, it's just been this really interesting also learning experience that whether it's dashboards or data or anything that you're creating different things that, you know, never existed. In some cases, it's sometimes like, especially now, I feel like it's been like a very much cat and mouse game that, you know, you can create this dashboard for this data set, but then the data set breaks or like, you know, something else happens that you need to sort of rebuild your, your plane as you're, as you're flying it. Um, And that's been the dynamic nature of it, I think has been really interesting to me, to be able to to see just rapid development of everything. Um, you know, when the vaccination rollout started, CDC didn't publish public data on vaccinations until either end of December or, or, or early January. And we had been vaccinated for two weeks before then. And I think so one of my things was I was pulling from state dashboards manually. I would spend 30 minutes a night going to 20 states who had dashboards at the time, because no one really did. And we were pulling basically, you know, how many people were getting vaccinated a day. It was it was just really interesting to me to, to build those tools and to use those tools that would probably become irrelevant in, in a week. And then you would have to sort of re, retool and, and regroup. And I think it's also people's attention, you know, and p- getting people to focus on particular things. We all have quite short attention spans. And, and so how do you make people care? You really have to keep innovating. You have to keep making that that product that, that people are going to check. I mean, the, the, the white house outbreak is, is probably the, the biggest, one of the bigger things that I was working on that was absolute, you know, craziness for a two week period. And then afterwards, no one really cared about it, but I think it's just been really <laughs> interesting to, to see how things constantly develop on an, even even daily basis. Did you find it strange at any point that the work of pulling
0: some of that data together fell to you? to, you know, a college senior in in
1: a corner of Vermont? Yeah, I I did. And I think there's been a lot of examples of that where there have been incomplete data and other people have had to fill the gaps. I think in the earlier days in the previous administration, there was just a lack of transparency when it came to the data. And I think even now there there still sort of are some gaps. But yeah, it it was definitely kind of interesting. The White House project basically started on a post-it note in this room where I was personally just interested in seeing who the former president had come in contact with. And then it turned into like a PowerPoint slide. And then I had partnered with a couple of people who could build something that was more durable and could, could be added to constantly. Um, but it basically just started on, on a little note card that I had on my desk.
0: Was it because you had a vision that, people are going to want this information like people are, are interested in this or was it really just fueling your own personal curiosity?
1: I think it was fulfilling my own personal curiosity. I didn't <laughs> going into it. That, I, I thought people were going to kind of find it fun or look at it, but I didn't project that it was going to get the, the traction or anything that it had done.
0: So you're graduating this weekend. You're moving out. What happens next?
1: Yeah. So I'm going on a road trip for 22 days, which starts next a week today, next Thursday. And I think the purpose that I, I think there's a couple purposes. I think one is personal in that I never was really had the opportunity to travel this country. Um, and I really want to explore. I've never been to Chicago or Detroit or a lot of the places that, that you know, people in this country may vacation to or whatever. And, and I think the second part is I really wanted to see, I want to see a number of people who I've worked with online over the last year. Or so, but I also want to see what is it like to be in the U.S. of June of 2021? Um, And what does recovery mean? What does vaccination mean in different places? Because I think it's really interesting. I think one of the things that's perplexed me over the last year is just the the sheer regional differences in this country, the Northeast versus the South versus the West. And so I'll be hitting 17 states, I believe, about 23 cities, hopefully trying to meet with people, connections with a couple of public health people. But I'm, I'm just excited to also celebrate the point that we've gotten to this moment that people can travel and people can do that kind of stuff yeah uh, yes. someone who hasn't really moved much in the last year and a half well let me ask you about that i mean how do you characterize the point
0: that we're at right now as somebody who's, who's been really close to this for almost a year and a half what do you think about this moment is is the pandemic over are we just kind of entering a new phase of it uh where are we
1: yeah, I think it's really interesting. And I think one of the major points of change was a couple of weeks ago when the CDC had, had changed that masking guidance for vaccinated individuals. Um, it happened to be the day that I was fully vaccinated. So, you know, it was, it was really fun to see that. But, but I think that day when the CDC changed its guidance, I think, was a big moment for people, many people who, who are fully vaccinated, that they can do a lot of the normal things that they were doing before the pandemic. A lot of people obviously have been doing that already. Some of them have been doing it all along, of course. But I think for a lot of us, especially here in the Northeast, that's been a major point. And I think how I think about it going forward is that you know this should be our way to reconnect with people, a way to see friends, see family, and to to do all those activities that we really enjoyed and 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 participate in those. But I think there are two things that we can't move on from or not that quickly. I think the the first thing is that there were a lot of people who didn't get to make it to this point because they are either sick or they lost their lives in, in the last year and a half. And, I, and it's, it's really hard for me to sort of move on from that. It's really hard to say, well, you know, we're, we're fine and we're out doing this stuff. But, but, you know, there are a lot of people who have lost family members, who have lost friends, and, and it's, it's really hard in that way. Um, and then I think sort of a second thing to consider is that we're in a crisis of global vaccine equity. That you know we could consider the pandemic possibly over here in the U.S. And I think these vaccines are obviously incredibly safe, incredibly effective. And and it's I think June's going to be great. I think July's going to be great. You know, statistics wise. But a lot of countries will not get vaccines for the next two, three years. And it's not just strictly a developing versus non-developing country issue. You know, There are a lot of other countries, I'm talking to a couple of friends in Australia and New Zealand, and many of them have not had the chance to get vaccinated. Even Canadians, some of them haven't had the chance to get vaccinated until the last week or so. And I think it's just really hard to, I hope that we still consider that we are privileged to be in this position, but there are a lot of people around the world that, that aren't. I know in the time that you've been
0: researching and and doing work around this, that we've learned a lot about this specific virus. I wonder if you feel like there are broader takeaways that you're kind of coming out of this crisis with, you know, what are your your big takeaways coming out of this year?
1: Yeah, I think there's a couple. I think number one, pandemics or really any kind of crisis like, like this, they're very interdisciplinary. Um, and as an interdisciplinary major, I mean, I'm an international global studies major with focusing on East Asia. I've sort of gotten to take courses from all kinds of different disciplines. But I think it really underscores the point of bringing multiple perspectives together and really re- respecting, yeah, there are scientists, there are doctors, obviously that, that's their focus. But then you also need the sociologists. You also need, you know, the experts. You need, a, you know, public-private partnerships. You need the government to be on board. You need all that kind of stuff. And then I think the second thing that I was thinking about is communication is really, really everything and incredibly important. How do you get people to care? That's really been something that I've focused on. I think even before the pandemic in journalism, obviously when you're writing a story or you're doing a piece or whatever, you're always thinking, how do I get people to care about what I'm writing about? Or how do I get people to care about this story? Um, and that's been something that I've just continuously thought about. How do you get people to you know, really understand the stakes that are at or understand their personal threat or, or, or their risk. Uh, and I think the scientific communicators or the people who can communicate that information have really been the whole stars and, and the whole heroes of this thing, because it's been really hard to, to show people how this is affecting them. Um, and especially in a, in a society, which is very divided and people have have you know vastly different beliefs. Do you see yourself coming back to Vermont? Yeah, I, I do in the future. I, I don't know if that's going to be immediately, you know, in the next couple of years, but I, I definitely would definitely come back and visit. Um, and it's been really, it's been really rewarding to be here for four years, for sure. Thanks so much for your time, Benji. Oh, absolutely. It. Thanks so much for having me. I, re- I really, I really appreciate all of it.
0: You can find all of VT Digger's COVID-19 coverage at vtdigger.org slash coronavirus. You're listening to The Deeper Dig, a weekly podcast from the VT Digger Newsroom. Search for it and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts, and you'll get new episodes as soon as they land. We used music this week by Blue Dot Sessions. We'll be back next week with more stories from the Digger Newsroom. See you then.